Welcome to OBS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. This is episode number 68. This episode is a talk with Brad Coey and Richard Sanger from the WAN Network Research Group at the University of Waikato. Both of them are associated with the Fawcett Project, which develops an open source open flow controller for enterprise networks. In this talk, they introduce Fawcett and then talk about how Fawcett was involved in Cynet, the network at the SC18 Supercomputer Conference in Dallas. On to the talk. What I'm going to be talking to you about today is, um, so we write this thing called the Fawcett controller, which there's like an OBS tutorial for it and stuff. So you may have heard of it, may not have, but um, I'll give like an overview of what Fawcett is. And then um, we did a rather large deployment of it last year in production. Um, and so I'll talk about that. And I'll try and fill in the little bits along the way of how OBS has been involved in our, um, in our journey. So... Um, what is Fawcett? That's the logical first question to answer. So um, we call ourselves a lightweight open source SDN controller, and there's a lot of different SDN controllers out there. What ours does is L2 and L3 networking. So you can think of us like, you know, you go down to the store, buy a Cisco switch, plug into your network. That's our goal, to be that. So we're for doing campus network connectivity and that kind of thing. And we just happen to use OpenFlow 1.3, because um, we want to um, change the behavior of hardware devices, and OpenFlow is a good way of doing that. Um, and we say we're a lightweight controller because we're a small amount of code. Um, we try and use low system resources, um, and this is a bit of a difference to other controllers out there that are these big monolithic things that require a lot of compute to run. And then um, because we're enterprise network operator friendly um, and focused, we wanted to have this like policy-driven approach to changing Fawcett so that you didn't have to know Python um, or any code to go in and change the default behavior. All right, so a little bit of history about the project. So um, we basically started with a set of goals that we wanted to um, attain or work towards, and that was having you know, you guys have been working on OBS and various products here at VMware, so you know you want robust software that's going to work when you're in the software space. Um, we started this thing about five years ago, so OpenFlow hardware didn't exist yet. Well, the stuff that did exist wasn't the best, so we wanted to work with vendors to get really good OpenFlow implementations out there. We wanted to extensively test it so that we could be confident deploying it places, and we wanted it to look like things network operators were used to using. So it had to interrupt with all their monitoring tools they used and, and um, interrupt with regular networks so you didn't have to run this strange SDN thing off to the side. You could plug it into your regular network in it and it would sort of work. Um, so the, the way this kind of all came about um, was um, sort of a collaborative effort of the SDN community in New Zealand. So we're a small country of four and a half million-ish people and... Um, one kind of unique thing some of us share is this passion for SDN and, and changing things. So um, in the early days, um, so RIANs are our um, like research education network for New Zealand. So in America, you've got Internet2. In Europe, you've got Giant. RIANs is kind of the thing in New Zealand that does that. And they wrote kind of like the first, um, I guess, proper version of Fawcett. And then a bunch of other of us... Um, 
sort of um, we've got colleagues at Google that work on this. Um, my university, University of Waikato, um, Victoria University, which is also in New Zealand, we've all kind of been working on this project together and um, and that kind of thing in a bit of a collaborative uh, fashion. Uh, and we've been going about um, so five years old. I checked Git a few weeks ago. Um, so we've been doing this a little while, and we're up to about 47 different contributors from around the world, which we think is pretty cool. It's always nice working in open source and getting to work with other smart people. Did you want to introduce yourself, Richard? Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> Hi, I'm Richard, and I'm uh, doing a PhD, and my topic that I'm looking into is transforming overflow rule sets to constrained hardware pipelines. So taking an existing rule set that your control is programmed and targeting, say, like the Broadcom's OFDPA pipeline or something, where you kind of have to do routing here and switching here and trying to algorithmically um, rearrange rule sets. Okay, so back to the talk. So um, why would you use something like Fawcett? So, um, yeah, as I've said before, we wanted something very low system resources. So the smallest SDN deployment I've seen with Fawcett has been on a Raspberry Pi as a controller and controlling a couple of switches. And you can run it right up to something a bit larger than that as well. Um, for um, scalability, we wanted to make sure we had a very multi-table OpenFlow pipeline. And one of my slides later on, I'll talk about exactly how that pipeline works. But in OpenFlow, when you're running on hardware, this is the best way to achieve scale. So if you don't have multiple tables, you've got to join all your rules together and put it in a single table, and you very quickly run out of TCAM space on a, on a switch. So we use a very deep nested pipeline to make sure that um, we can achieve better scale. Another unique thing about Fawcett over other controllers is that we support many different vendors. So I think at the moment we support four hardware vendors and three or four software vendors, and we do all that without having any driver layer. So other SDN controllers will have um, drivers for um, programming different switches in different ways. Um, we didn't want that complexity, so what we did is instead work directly with hardware vendors to make sure they supported pure OpenFlow 1.3, no vendor extensions, and um, uh, that their implementations actually kind of worked. Um, we do a bunch of testing, and that's where we use OVS quite a bit, so I'll talk a little bit later in a slide about that. And um, we're doing all our high availability with item potency. So we don't um, require a clustered controller with deep state sharing to, to support multiple switches. What we do is treat each um, uh, faucet individually. And as long as you give them similar um, configs and point a single switch or a data plane at both active-active using master-slave uh, master in OpenFlow, you can kind of, they'll program the switch in the same fashion. So that's how we're doing OHA. And another important thing is our controller isn't in the forting path, so everything happens in hardware programmed with OpenFlow, which is important for doing line rate. So, um, yeah, I've said this before, Fawcett's small, so 10,000 lines of code, 5,000 lines of test. It's all in Python at the moment, and we use Ryu for our OpenFlow control plane implementation. Um, so Fawcett just gives you primitives, basically. It gives you forting, um, VLAN isolation, ACLs is how the policy sort of works, and we've got a bunch of fibs for doing routing. And then we've implemented a bunch of protocols. As I said, we wanted to interoperate with regular networks. So we've got a BGP implementation in there for throwing routes at it. Um, we have our own version of kind of stacking um, for building multiple switches into one big switch. 
LACP for link bundles. And because we're doing routing, we need a neighborhood discovery implementation so that things plugged into a faucet network can use faucet as its next hop, so um, the gateway. And we, we keep all protocols modular so that um, we don't have code running when it's, when it's not in use. So a typical deployment of faucet would look a bit like this. So at the bottom, you'd have a bunch of SDN switches. Um, and then you plug it into faucet. But with faucet, you get two controllers for the price of one. So we also have this thing called gauge. And gauge is a read-only controller. It doesn't push anything um, to the switches, any rules or anything like that. And it's just there for monitoring. So it sits there constantly polling the switch and pushes all of the flow stats and port stats down to um, a time series database. Commonly, we use Prometheus because it's quite easy to work with. Um, but you can use other ones as well. And then the faucet controller just consumes some YAML, um, and it pushes down a netbook implementation with OpenFlow rules down to the switch. And you can um, sort of link in an external router or an external system via our event system. So every time it learns a MAC address, learns an um, IP address, an event gets created, and you can, you can consume that. So that would also let you do a full feedback loop where you could write back to Faucet some new behavior that it wanted to do with that thing it just learned. Faucet also produces a lot of instrumentation data and pushes that into Prometheus so you can read that with um, maybe Grafana for doing live dashboarding and that kind of thing. So our config um, file is, is just simply YAML. Um, and that YAML file represents the entire network topology and all the features you want to implement. So um, here we have an example config. Um, so it's just a YAML document. It has a couple of top-level um, sort of properties. So in this example, we're using VLANs and data paths, DPs. So VLANs just defines all the um, virtual LANs you want on the network. So in this example, we've just got a single VLAN called Office, VID of 100. You can add a description that will go through to Prometheus, so you can kind of find the, the data labeled later on. And this key option here, faucet VIP, virtual IP, is how you do the routing. So you can add as many of those as you want per VLAN. And then hosts in that VLAN can use that as their next top address. And we actually um, push um, all the important rules down to the switch to implement that in hardware. Uh, and then we'll just send the neighborhood discovery packets up to faucet via packetins to um, be able to reply with our MAC address. So in this example, um, it's just got a single switch called switch1. Data path identifier of 0x1, and um, we're finally getting a little bit of linkage back to Open vSwitch. Um, this example is using an Open vSwitch switch, and it's got two ports on the same VLAN. So here's um, our pipeline, kind of. So Fawcett uses a dynamic pipeline these days. So depending on which features you turn on, we create or destroy OpenFlow tables um, to implement the minimum set of behavior. So we won't do this when we're programming OpenV switch because obviously you've got 255 tables of whatever you want. But on hardware, life isn't like that. On hardware, we have constrained um, resources. So the less tables we can use, the, the more effectively the hardware can work. And, um, and we're not running out of resources. But this is a common pipeline for when you have routing enabled and switching enabled. If you have more features on, you might get a few more tables. But commonly, you'd see less tables than this. So um, it's a packet-based pipeline. If you're familiar with OpenFlow, this will all kind of make sense. So packets come in at the top, and they get processed by our ACL table. That's when we apply policy to a given port. And then we throw it through a VLAN table where we make sure every 
packet has a VLAN tag on it. That's so that in later tables we can separate packets by VLAN. And then you can apply um, to a whole VLAN some kind of policy or ACL. And then we go into our learning tables. So we start with S source, where we look at the source address. Um, we then look at the destination, whether it's going to be for um, routing or for switching. If it's for routing, we'll go into a fib table where we've pre-populated a bunch of routes. Um, we've also got this VIP table, and that's for faucet, so it can have um, an IP address on the network, and that's where we process that. And then finally, you'll end up with an ifdes table where we either know the MAC address where the packet's going, or um, and we can output it to the correct port. Otherwise, we don't, and we just need to flood inside the VLAN like a like a regular switch would do. So faucet policies, um, actually, pretty simple concept. So they're just OpenFlow rules where we provide a bunch of different um, actions that work nicely with the faucet pipeline. So um, uh, you can match on anything, OpenFlow can, inside the header. And then we have a bunch of different actions that we, um, we allow you to use, like drop and allow for firewalling. Output lets you kind of implement TCP dump on a switch, so you can match on a particular flow you want to look at, and you can copy that packet to um, somewhere where you've got a, t a sniffer running, so maybe you've got a TCP dump session. And this lets you do um, you know, a span port, but it's um, got a selected amount of traffic on it. And we also let you modify packet in flight, and this is useful if you're wanting to NFE some kind of packet stream off to another server, and you want, might want to modify the MAC address or something in flight. So, you show management API into the system, I don't call it in the... Oh, um, so the management API is this YAML file. So you change the file and then... Change the file, and you change the faucet behavior. Now, this might be a little annoying for some people, so we're adding gRPC and GNMI right now. And I was just up at Stanford merging that code in like an hour and a half ago. Um, so that'll be the kind of new way of interacting with Fawcett. Um, so you'll be able to send it new config stanzas via gRPC calls. Um, but yeah, with Fawcett, we just wanted to keep everything as simple as possible. There's no incremental change. You can't add or remove stuff to an existing configuration. You would have to reparse the whole file. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but you can split the file. So we have a notion of include. So you could have, um, you can subdivide your config as much as you want and just modify smaller parts of the config. Well, when you change something, what happens to the switches? What they learn? They are wiped out and reinstalled? No, uh, so what we do is on a config change is we know what the switch had on it. We know what you want to do. We do a diff between the two, calculate the minimal um, set of OpenFlow rules we've got to push down to the switch, and we'll try and do it that way. If you make a big change, then yeah, we'll just give up and clear the switch and push the new flows down. But because we're dealing with kind of enterprise hardware, enterprise switches, the number of flows we're kind of seeing on a given switch is sub 10,000. So it's not too many seconds to, if you need to rewrite the whole entire switch in one go, if that makes sense. So a typical use case for kind of policy. Um, uh, so for the port-based stuff, you're doing all your regular like DHCP, DHCPv6 spoofing. Um, V6 router guard. Um, we've been doing a lot of work recently on 802.1x, which is client plugs into a port. They want to authenticate who they are to the network. Um, and so we know how to um, carve off EA pole traffic to another sub-module and force it that parses it, sends it off to a network access controller over radius. And then we've got auth allow, auth reject, um, which we um, push down to the switch. 
Um, things you might apply to a whole VLAN. Um, so uh, my home, well, my work network at back home um, runs Fawcett, and we have a V6 only SSID at work. And I've got a Fawcett ACL that only allows the V6 ether type on their network. So it's a very effective way of um, kind of ensuring that your network only has the traffic that you want on it. Um, and then we also do lots of inter-VLAN routing. So you've got two VLANs, you want to allow them to talk, but maybe only on a certain number of protocols. And so you can, you can um, implement policy um, between VLANs as well. So here's what a, like a basic faucet poly looks like. So it's just um, YAML again. We have a new top-level argument called ACLs. In this example, we've got a new one called v6 RA guard. It's got a single rule in it, but it could have multiple rules if you want to make something a bit more complicated. And all it does is match on the um, open flow parts of the packet that you'd expect for router reversements. And then we have actions allow zero, which means drop the frame. So it's a very simple way of adding new um, uh, um, functionality to a switch without actually having changed the code on the switch. So it would be nice if you had the name constants for those hex values. Oh, yeah. So um, those all come from Ryu at the moment. And yeah, we're just a bit lazy with handling those. We should totally do that. Yeah, it wouldn't be too, too much work. Is in general a better a DSL with types rather than YAML to be helpful? Like, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, we kind of just went with YAML because it was. It's like easy for a lot of things to interact with. Um, as soon as you write a language, you've got to, you know, have a syntax checker. And well, actually, we effectively have a syntax checker anyway. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I guess we just went with YAML because it, it kind of made sense at the time and was less work for us than having to. We're not very imaginative when it comes to thinking up languages ourselves. Um, yeah. Um, so one of the big ones we're Open vSwitch helps us is in our test suite. So we've got two sides of our test suite. So we've got unit tests for just testing all the functions, um, return the right result with the right type. And so we have about 92% of all of our code covered by unit tests at the moment. And they run very fast. And it's useful for developers to get a sense of whether they're breaking stuff. And then we also have this integration test suite thing. And that is a bit heavier. It takes about an hour to run. And it boots up real live networks with Mininet, with faucet controllers on the network using different feature sets. And then we have ways of injecting packets into those virtual networks and checking the packets went in the right places. We check the flow table states are the right, um, we've got the right flows in them and that kind of thing. And the integration test suite um, runs in CI at the moment and OpenVSwitch is the, um, is the usual switch we use um, virtually. And so we're using 2.11 uh, right now, and we always try and keep that up to date as much as possible. And this is run against every PR into Fawcett on GitHub. So this lets us avoid a lot of um, regressions in our code. We refactor very often. We're quite a small team, and we like to write the simplest thing first. And then as people use features um, and demand more scale from those features, we go back through and optimize and, and refactor. And having this big integration test suite has really helped us with that. The other funky thing you can do with our integration test suite is instead of pointing it at a virtual OpenV switch, you can also point it at hardware. So we have a number of different vendors who use the Fawcett integration test suite as part of their QA process for new firmwares. So this makes sure every time a new version of Fawcett comes out, they run the latest integration tests against their hardware. And whenever they release a new firmware, they run our test suite against that. 
and that makes sure that they can easily and automated, automatically qualify devices for full support. Um, and that means we don't have to go through and test all this hardware ourselves. The vendors are doing that in an automated fashion, um, which is really, really useful. Do they have to work around bugs in the hardware? Do they have to? No, wouldn't so much. Might need to. Yeah, so, um, so the, most of the vendors we work with, you, they have programmable ASICs that let them do some pretty cool stuff, which melds really nicely to, to OpenFlow. Um, though we do also have vendors using um, Broadcom Merchant Silicon with fixed pipeline, and um, you know, we let our vendors be vendors. They know their hardware better than we do, so we're just using simply OpenFlow as an API between the two of us. So we, we tell them what we want, and we use a part of the OpenFlow spec called table features messages. I'm not sure if people are familiar with those to signal what our pipeline wants to look like in hardware. So, um, so table features me- messages in the common use case, the switch can tell you what it supports. It goes, I have, in the OpenV switch case, 255 tables. In each table, I can match on everything. I can set everything. And the actions I can do is everything. On um, switches that have limited pipelines, you could, you could say, oh, in this table, it's an Ethernet table, so I can only deal with MAC addresses or that kind of thing. We kind of flip that on, our, on its head, and we send to the switch a TFM of what we want. So we go, we parse your config, we work out all the features we need, we work out what tables we need in what order with what matches, we create a TFM message, send it down to the switch, and they dynamically provision their TCAM and um, ASIC to support all of those things for us. And if we accidentally run them out of resources, they'll reply and say, um, I think we use ePerm for that at the moment, permissions denied. I don't have the resources to actually do that. And you can kind of simplify your, your pipe down, pipeline down a little bit more. But it's statically, where every time you do a configuration, you, yep. you might get this one. Yep, and um, all our vendors at the moment support that. Um, we can runtime redefine their, their ASIC. Um, so they're obviously doing some pretty cool stuff on their side to make that work. Um, but they have some pretty cool ASICs um, that, that do um, some pretty nice dynamic functions. Um, there was one other thing I was going to say. Oh, the other thing we do is we estimate how large each table can be, and we signal that to the switch as well so that they can carve out their ASIC um, TCAM in, 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 a right, in, in the expected size that we'll need for each table. Um, what's some other funky stuff we do? Um, I had something that I've forgotten. The size is measured in entries? Or? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we have a basic algorithm for estimating, but generally we recommend the, that the user or operator should estimate their size of the tables themselves because we often get it wrong. But it'll be something we improve in, in future versions, um, being able to more accurately guess how long a table should be. So, oh, that's right. I remember the, the thing I was going to come back to. Not all our vendors use TCAM. We have some vendors that have um, SRAM and other things, and that's often where they'll put um, route tables. So we had two fibs. Obviously, storing those in TCAM is a bit of a waste of time. So you can store them in hash tables in SRAM um, and get much bigger route tables. Does OpenFlow allow you to specify the table implementation? No. Um, that is a challenge, yes. <laughs> um, well, the table features and messages do let you say if you want to get the mask and the values, so it's an indication um, how we can do what it wants. Yeah, so I guess one thing we do is we tell the hardware whether a table's exact match or wildcard match, 
because we have a number of vendors um, like NoviFlow in particular who have an MPU-based product with lots of different memories available. And we'll, when we program down a table, tell them whether we're going to mask anything in that table. And then they have different places they can store the tables to, to be more efficient. Because TCAM is obviously only useful if, you've, if you're using a wildcard bit. It gives you ternary memory, whereas um, often a hash table is better for more static tables. So yeah, over the last five years, we've, learnt, we've learned more than we wanted to about hardware as a software company. <laughs> so how about the uh, OBSDB power? Does each hardware switch runs? I'd like the how the switch hardwares work. So um, we're not quite there where we want to be right now, but eventually there's this protocol called GNMI, um, gRPC Network Management Interface, and that uses open config models to say, this is what a switch config typically looks like. It has a you know, controller IP address. It has a data path identifier. It needs a management IP, or maybe it needs DHCP. Um, eventually, we want to get to a case where we can use gRPC to send this down to the switch. It'll, we call it ZTP, zero-touch provision itself, um, load its right config, um, mint it with some PKI cert so it knows how to trust its controller. Um, so we're eventually working with the vendors towards this, but we don't really have it working right now. So at the moment, you kind of end up with a golden config that you push to every switch. You just tweak the IP address or use DHCP and tweak the data plane identifier. Or you could just use the MAC address of the switch as its data plane identifier, that kind of thing. So th there's, some, there's some stuff you can do um, around that. But yeah, definitely we want to make it a bit more automated. Um, that's for sure. That answered your question? Yeah. Okay, so this all leads on to this kind of push on green DevOps approach to networking. So um, once you've got this kind of test suite, you've got integration tests, you can throw in all the features your network needs into this, and you can kind of run it as a CI CD platform. So you might have some kind of web interface where you can provision new ports, new switches or whatever, um, new versions of Fawcett, new versions of your config, and you can kind of run it through this um, uh, push on green system where you run all the tests, make sure they all look good, and push out to your network. You might roll it out in stages. You might roll it to, out to a canary network first or whatever. Um, and if things fail, um, you can like roll back. It's pretty easy to go back a version of Fawcett or go back a version of Config if you store the last version, especially if you're storing all the stuff in Git like I do. Um, and so with all this, you can allow for frequent automated deploys on your network. So in the enterprise space, nobody does this. So the networks I work with and the more traditional enterprise space, I mean, I'm still working with hand-configured networks where whatever a person decides to type into a switch at any given day is the config version that's running. Um, but with frequent automated deploys, um, you can start to do more um, cool things. Uh, and so, for example, the Fawcett network at um, work that I run, we do weekly deploys. I know on some of the other people we work with with Fawcett, they're doing two weekly deploys, um, which allows us to actually re-implement um, uh, you know, new features and improve features at a very rapid pace. Okay, so now on the deployment side, so um, there's a little bit of history on Fawcett and a very quick rundown on how it kind of works. Um, so last year we did this big deployment using Fawcett. Um, so there's this conference called SC, so Supercompute. runs every year. It's about a 14,000-seat HPC conference. And last year they happened to have their 30th anniversary in Dallas. Uh, in November. And as part of this conference, they build this thing called the Cynet internet connection. 
and that powers all the like breakout rooms, tutorial rooms, workshops, and also they have this big show floor where all the vendors turn up. And it just so happens that this network's one of the fastest um, temporary networks in the world. So it's only in production for about a week of the year. And I'll go into a little bit of the scale of it um, in the next couple of slides. Oh, and um, yeah, we deployed Fawcett on it for last year. OK, so this is um, our network that we built last year. So um, this is Lance, who did um, that diagram he's standing in, uh, so proudly in front of. So that's our network topology. So each box is either a very big um, network uh, switch or router, um, and each line is either 10 gig, 100 gig, or 400 gigs of fiber. And so last year we built um, into a convention center downtown Dallas uh, 4.02 terabits per second of internet. So the on-network on capacity was way, way larger than that, but that's how much internet we actually bought in. Um, all the vendors sort of loaned their gear, so we were playing with $52 million worth of um, very fun toys, all the latest and greatest as well. Um, and this all weighs a lot, so we had 4.25 tons of equipment to move around. Um, and it takes about 220 people to operate this network. So everyone's running in their little teams with their different um, uh, goals they're working towards. Um, so some people are working on laying fiber, some people are working on provisioning uh, network equipment and that kind of thing. And um, we kind of slotted in this. So let's take a little step back. How did a couple of people who write an enterprise SDN controller in New Zealand get involved in this? Well, we're always looking for deployments and looking for new challenges to, to show that our little enterprise controller can, can do bigger networks. So we kind of approached the conference committee via email um, very early last year, uh, so this time last year, actually. And we were like, hey, we want to see our network in more places. Would you want, would be interested in SDN deployment? And luckily, they're very open to doing these kind of um, new show-off networks, showing off new capabilities. So they were pretty excited to have a big SDN deployment as part of their network. And we kind of just started working. So um, we had a lot of fun with um, planning. So obviously, um, the conference committee is split between America and they've got a few people in Europe. So we had months and months of video calls to, to all of them to, to work out you know, how do we integrate with, with this big conference that we'd never really worked with before. And um, we kind of built the smaller eight, ten-person team to help do the faucet side of things. And we were split between two cities in New Zealand and Berkeley out here, Champaign across in Illinois and Dallas. And so we came up with, um, you know, network deployments used to start with building some requirements and scoping. So we decided early on that we'd build a network in parallel alongside their regular network. And that's so that we um, wouldn't step on each other's toes um, we didn't really want to know how to run their network because they've been building this thing for 27 years. This is the first time we'd ever heard of this conference. So we wanted to um, ensure success by making sure we didn't need to know how their stuff worked and they didn't need to know how our stuff worked. And then all we did is a simple BGP pairing between their network and ours. We advertised them a bunch of routes that we had and they advertised us an internet connection. And then, we'd say, then we said um, that the faucet... Um, uh, deployment would do a percentage of the booths on the show floor, provide them internet connection. And eventually we got around 25% of the circuits were through Fawcett and the rest through the regular network. And by booth, all I mean um, is a separate VLAN and some public IP space. Pretty, pretty simple stuff. And then each booth, um, when they joined up to the conference, they could order an internet connection. They could order one at 1 gig, 10 gig, or 100 gig. So at their little trade booth in the middle of like a 
um, downtown Dallas Convention Center, you could buy a 100 gig clean internet connection, and that worked, um, which was quite surprising. I've never seen that at a conference before. Um, and all the customer information and connection information came from a Django web app that they write. And so we just need to do a bit of integration into that. And so we started very simply with um, a bit of a network design. And so you need to know a couple of terms to understand this design. So you've probably all heard of Network Operations Center, NOC. It's usually the people running the network, and they kind of sit together in a room with monitors. Um, they also use that term to mean the core of their network, so where all the routing and fiber comes in, uh, because the network operators sit right next to all the equipment. Um, and then, so we needed a faucet router that went into the NOC, and it did 400 gig up to the two core routers, so that's 200 gig um, LACP bundles. And then the access network they call a DNOC, so distributed NOC. And that's where all the booths connect in. And these DNOCs are dotted all around the show floor because it's so big that um, you kind of need a physical presence um, as close as possible to where the booths are. And so the next thing we did is um, we sourced a bit of hardware. So we had a bit of a network design. We had a crazy idea of what we wanted to pull off. So we called up a few of our vendors that support Fawcett, and we're like, hey, do you guys want to help out with our crazy deployment? And um, thankfully, they were all pretty excited to come have a play. So they all donated us two Fawcett OpenFlow devices each, and they donated us one to two engineers to help us um, uh, make sure that their switches worked against Fawcett, and they even came out to the conference to, to help us set up as well. And now... Oh, just for the deployment, but um, we needed the equipment for about, I would say, four months. So um, I guess it's quite a generous... Um, uh, contribution because they could have sold that equipment to someone else um, uh, and I, I believe they've kind of kept these in their labs in case we want to do it again or want to do similar deployments um, but yes we did have to ship it back at the end of the conference they're not sitting at my house um, on my coffee table or something like that did you find any bugs? That... yes <laughs> um, maybe we could have an offline discussion of, of our bugs but the main part is they got all the bugs fixed um, and then we kind of, since this is the first time we've done something so big, we kind of wanted to see the network work before we took it off to show it off. So um, our friends out at ESNet um, in Berkeley offered to host a test lab for us because um, obviously if we had to ship everything to New Zealand, configure it all and ship it back to America, you know, the devices would have been on planes, half the project. So um, it was quite nice being able to bring those to Berkeley. And now anyone who's worked with um, vendors and shipping companies knows that this is an instant to procure six devices from three different vendors in three different cities. Uh, one's actually based out of Canada, so um, you know, this took a bit of time, so we had a little bit of time on our hands to sort of work and design on the network and, and um, make sure everything worked. So this is the final network that we sort of deployed. So along the top, there's a big Cisco and a big Juniper that um, Synet supplied, and then we plugged into that. Um, we plugged into a NoviFlow um, Barefoot Tofino switch, so that's one of their P4 ASICs. Um, and you haven't seen the word P4 come up yet, but I'll explain in a couple of slides how an OpenFlow controller talks to a P4 switch. And then what we did is a 10 gig NFV link off to a Linux box, and that's so that we could do DHCP and BGP on there. Um, uh, and so there's just a link across. And then we go through these DCIs, so they're just data center interconnects. There's so many different wavelengths on this network that they like to put in optical um, transport gear to, so they don't have to run 
all these fiber cables all over the convention center. And then Cisco AT and NoviFlow all donated various hardware with numbering port counts. And eventually we got out to 7,500 gig ports, 146 10 gig, and 48 1 gig. So about nine terabits per second of open flow, um, all on hardware. And so Fawcett, as part of this network, was doing all the VLAN isolation and forwarding. We were producing all the V6 router advertisements um, uh, to the network to assign addresses. In Fawcett, we're also doing all the inter-VLAN routing. So one funky thing they do as part of the conference is you've got all these HPC vendors. So some of them are doing like storage nodes and data transfer nodes. And they actually want to go between their booths on the show floor and show that they can do 100 gig interop between each other. So you have to really make sure that inter-VLAN routing goes at line rate. Otherwise, they get quite grumpy. And then we had um, a bunch of generic network security policy implemented as part of this as well. So as I yeah, said before, IC DHCP server was running on the Linux box doing DHCP, and we had Bird running um, all the BGP for the network. All right, now P4. So I believe a lot of people in this room know P4 way better than I do, but here's the sort of brief 30-second introduction of how I understand P4. So you kind of have this user-supplied program that defines all your packet headers and tables and memories and that kind of thing. Your vendor gives you an architectural model that you slap against your program. You run it through a compiler that your vendor supplies, and out spits a runtime API and a data plane runtime that runs on the switch. Maybe it's a firmware or an application or some type of thing. Now, that's the traditional way of using P4, but we don't do anything really the traditional way at um, Fawcett, so we kind of did it a bit different. So it turns out one funky thing you can do is um, OpenFlow is kind of in, one, in some ways, you could think of it as, as a subset of what P4 can do. So you can actually write OpenFlow in the P4 language. And then um, I can tell you this happily compiles against the P4 compiler um, from, from Barefoot. And I can also confirm it runs on the Tofino ASIC. Um, and this is a way of using Fawcett, which is only speaking OpenFlow at this point, um, using OpenFlow as the runtime API for, for a P4 ASIC. And so... To this end, we didn't have to modify a single line in Fawcett to support this new switch. Um, and the great thing is we didn't even write this application. NoviFlow and out in Canada wrote it for us and did all the testing and got it all working. And I think they're now selling it as part of their network operating system that runs on various white boxes. So it was something they were shipping prior to this? Uh, not prior to this. We were the first users of it. Um, Maybe they have been working on it. Um, I think, yeah, p potentially they were working on it because they're like an SDN white box company. So potentially some of their customers already wanted this. Um, because I, I think it's still the case today that there's more OpenFlow controllers than P4 controllers. Um, but we were definitely the first ones that, that used it in production. And we were the first ones that used their Barefoot switch in production. And from talking direct to Barefoot, I think um, um, this is certainly the first public demonstration of such scale that they've seen before. So they, they were quite excited by our deployment as well. And is it all open flow 1.3 or is some parts of it? Um, so there are some parts we definitely don't use. Um, but we've got enough in there that when we started onboarding new vendors, we would have to work directly with them to improve some of their feature support in OpenFlow. So um, with some of the vendors we were working with, um, when we started working with them, they only did single table and not all the matches, but luckily the situation's improved over the last few years, and 
we definitely have at least four hardware vendors that support all of Fawcett's view of OpenFlow. But there's stuff we don't use at the moment, like um, we're not using groups as heavily as we could be. Um, we do use them in a few places, but not, not the ones that... Um, is it indirect groups that you hash? Uh, not indirect groups, um, select groups. We're not using them so much at the moment. Um, and there's a few other things, like we're not using auxiliary channels at the moment and that kind of thing. Um, we definitely, you know, we play the game of, since we work with hardware vendors, we kind of write a feature. We go see what's common across all our vendors, see if they can do it. If they can't, we've got to sort of work out if they're even able to do it in hardware. And if they all can, then we kind of go and implement it, um, enforce it. So it's kind of a stepping stone game of we try and keep in lockstep with the vendors as much as they can. Because obviously they, they can't just make software appear instantly. Um, and since we're working with like four directly, there is a bit of um, fun and games there. But this is one nice thing about the integration test system. We, we write, we first and send them an email and say what we want to do in the next sort of six months. Then the integration test will suddenly appear. And now they've got a contract that they can, when they pass the integration test, we're happy to say that they support the feature. So um, I guess we, yeah, we do test-driven hardware development of OpenFlow. So that is one of the four? Novaflow is one of the four, yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, yep, so, um, so the big hardware um, vendors that we support today, so um, I'll try and name them in order of when, who supported Fawcett first. So Allied Telesis were one of the first ones that we bought on, online, and they, um, they have a wide range of different hardware-based switches that you can use. And then Noviflow were quite early on as well, and they have an NPU product using EasyChip, and they also have um, a Tofino-based product, um, uh, which you can buy as well. Um, Cisco on the Catalyst 9K, um, they have a UEDP ASIC that supports Fawcett quite, quite nicely, and we have official support in iOS XE for Fawcett. And the last one, um, HP Aruba, um, some of their products have a Procurve ASIC, which quite nicely supports Fawcett as well. It's quite dynamic. Um, those are the big hardware vendors that we sort of support at the moment. Then there's a couple of SmartNIC suppliers, and then there's OpenV Switch, Lagopus, that kind of thing. So I, for one, on my network, um, one of my elements is an OpenV Switch with DPDK, because if you're doing, you know, even up to 10 gig um, and past 10 gig, that's a pretty good way of doing things uh, in a cheap fashion. And because everything's stored in like DDR memory, you can get a lot more rules than you could on a on an ASIC. But those are the kind of people we're working with. Uh, so yeah, we did a little bit of development to make this work. So um, we already had most of the features for the network, um, but to make sure these were working and kept working, we made sure there were integration tests for everything. This is so that as we're going through and optimizing various parts of our code, getting rid of bottlenecks, we can make sure those features kept working without us having to go back and manually test them all the time. And then we kind of built the scale model back in New Zealand. So kind of the great world I live in is, you know, with OpenFlow, Fawcett, and our integration test suite, like I could grab a bunch of random OpenFlow hardware in New Zealand, build this whole network out of one gig ports, and just test that, packets went in the right place and the features worked. And then 
because all that hardware supported the integration test suite and they were all passing. We made sure all the vendors, before they sent us their equipment, that that passed the integration test suite, that we could kind of um, you know, say that because it worked smaller scale, it should work on the bigger scale because we already knew that all the tests passed and indicated the features were all good. And then we did a bit of work on some automation. So automation is a pretty simple side. Um, so you can define a set of tasks once and repeat over and over and over again. So this is really good for doing deployments and operations type things. It's really good for network service definitions where you've got like some services you're selling, limited number of services, and you apply those to hundreds, thousands, different people. Um, and we were heavily using Ansible for our deployment for generating all the configs. So what are you uh, So all the configs were deployed with Ansible. So, um, so the configs we needed to generate were so on the left oh, on the right here. Sorry, so we needed to generate faucet configs, um, which said the topology and which VLANs went where and that kind of thing. We needed to generate DHCP configs so that the right IPs were given to the right booths, because you need to know you need to map a VLAN number to a port where the booth physically is, to assigning the right IP addresses to that VLAN. Um, we did a big BGP mesh in the middle of the network for redundancy at routing layer. So we needed to generate that config. And then the way our NFV host worked is we need to put the Linux box in every, v, uh, in every VLAN. And so by using Ansible as you know, the single point that did all this config, we didn't have to handwrite anything, really. So how that worked is we had the source of truth of network, which was this Django database that they supplied. I wrote a short Python script that um, uh, dumped all the database connection information into a YAML file. Ansible inputted this YAML file and used Ginger2 to just template everything out. And kind of, you'd just refresh the model from the database, um, you'd do an Ansible load, and it would outspit all the config. So if a customer moved ports, they changed connection speed or something like that, maybe they changed name, then all you did is rerun Ansible and it re-pushed out to the network. And before it pushed out to the network, it checked all the configs were valid and were going to work. And so this is how we kept the network up to date without having to log into any device. So the whole network, we, the whole time the network was up, we didn't log into anything. Um, everything was managed by the central system. And so we went from 290 lines of like definition in YAML that came from Signet. I put that through 180 lines of Ansible, 260 lines of like templating language, and out popped 1,200 lines. So obviously it's annoying if I changed, you know, say I move. So we had an example of this where one of our switches got repatched, different ports. And so I just went and told the automation system where the new ports were, and I pushed it out, and it remeshed all the config for me. So I didn't have to go in and like hand edit config, and maybe I missed a spot where the the ports were wrong or the VLANs were wrong. So that's kind of what we use the automation for. And um, this is on GitHub. OK, but eventually at some point, all the gear turned up, and we could do some testing. So um, I used Ansible to roll out all our initial set of configs for everything. And then the idea was to throw a lot of traffic at it, make sure that things were going to do as we expected. And um, everyone in this room is probably aware of network namespaces. And I found this was a really great way of spinning up a bunch of fake clients. So um, I spun up like 2,000 of these across two different machines. Um, and each network namespace was a fake booth. 
and um, I wrote a bunch of dodgy bash scripts for like logging into all of them. Um, I had a script for pinging everything on the network, and I just left that running in the background, which was verifying L2 connectivity was working, and it would produce a report if there were any failures. And then I had a throughput tester script that logged into two random containers and did set up an iperf. And I only had 10 gig hardware at this point, so I, at this point I knew it worked at 10 gig, but I assumed that because it's all ASIC and all important hardware that the 100 gig should work as well. And then once the testing was over, we kind of shipped it off to the venue, and then we took a plane from New Zealand out to Texas to, to go set it all up. And so one other scary part of this whole network is um, the staging part of the network. So two weeks before the conference begins, the network is all in the same room at the same time. So we've had teams, 200 people, different teams working all these different projects, and it, all the boxes turn up in one room, and we plug it in and do interrupt testing for the first time. And I have to say, this is the most stressful part of the project. Um, uh, you know, turning on a network with so many bits and pieces and seeing if it can interrupt. But um, because we put so much testing into our network, um, ours was actually, I think, the first part of the network that came up, and we had no detectable issues um, when we deployed it. And so this is our staging team, and behind there is the, the network all in one place. And then this kind of gets broken out and taken to the show floor, which is actually a completely different room to this. So this is um, what a conference looks like before it's set up. So this is half of the downtown Dallas Convention Center that we're in. And you can see some of the signage and some of the booths starting to get built. And under the ground, you'll see them starting to run power cables and fiber cables everywhere. And eventually, everything gets carpeted over and looks nice. But this is kind of the work in progress. And they actually forklift load the network from one room to the other. But luckily, they've got some pretty good professional um, forklift drivers over there. And everything was delivered without a scratch. And um, eventually, they reach a point where the um, customer database is finalized. They don't accept any more um, orders. And they sort of um, stop moving things around. And so we did a deploy with Ansible. It pushed all the configs to everything. And um, then we kind of worked with each booth as they were built to make sure their internet worked. OK, so this is what a DNOC looks like. So um, it's kind of like this caged off area on the show floor. And then on the right here, we see at the top is a regular Cynet switch. And then we had our faucet switch. That one's a NoviFlow MPU-based switch. And then below there is the optical transport equipment that brought all the wavelengths back to the, the NOC. And so this is the NOC. Behind plexiglass, you can go take your photos or check that the lights are blinking in the right order or something. And then behind here is where all 200 people sit and make sure the network's operational and, and that kind of thing. And now, we'd never seen it work at 100 gig before, so we kind of wanted to test that. So we went and borrowed some Linux boxes that had iperf and the Mellanox 100 gig cards on them, plugged it in. This is a load test through three different switches doing inter-VLAN routing. So we could see, um, you can see in the top sort of left corner that we very successfully hit 100 gig, um, which we were quite happy to see uh, everything work. And this is Grafana, which is um, the real-time dashboarding tool we were using to monitor the network. And then there's kind of showtime, which is um, you know, looking for tickets. Um, we're watching all the monitoring we built. Um, so we didn't have any issues with the SDN side of the network. Um, we did have to, um, uh, you know, because a lot of the fiber was under the floor, you'd have 
forklifts roll over it and cut it, or you've had people drop things on it, so you'd have to go and fusion splice the, the fibers back together. We had a bunch of people bring multi-mode optics, and our network was single-mode only, so you'd have to go out and swap optics. And then there were a lot of fibers that were run the wrong way. RX and TX were run the wrong way, so we just had to go around and fix those. So that's what we spent most of our time doing. And then kind of, yeah, after seven months of planning, three weeks of testing, three weeks of setup, it all comes tearing down in one day. Um, and it's kind of crazy to watch just all this equipment coming out of racks, um, fiber cables going everywhere, people trying to coil it all up. It's quite intense. And so this is um, sort of a more general picture of our faucet team who we were working with with most of the year. So we've got some Googlers, we've got some vendor people, um, ESnet were a big help um, as well. And so what, what did we kind of learn from this? So the feedback we got from the network operators is they liked that Fawcett could help them automate a large number of their kind of common use cases. And they could spend more time working on the 10% of customers that were, I won't say difficult, but wanted to do more interesting things. So they have universities there that want to pull in like hundreds of gigs of bandwidth from other continents, and that involves a lot of um, fiber path stitching and, and stuff. So they could spend all their time doing that sort of stuff. So Fawcett effectively allowed us to, sorry, I'll wrap up in a second here, um, underlie, uh, ignore the underlying network equipment. So we didn't actually know what most of the hardware was that was turning up, and still the network could work because it passed the unit tests. And we proved that 10,000 lines of Python can easily handle multiple terabits per second. And there's a tutorial on our website, faucet.nz. Otherwise, I think that's, that's me. So I'm happy to talk about any of the architecture stuff behind Fawcett or how we use OVS or my thoughts on P4 or whatever. Then I guess you are not using OVS data, so the software OVS data pass, right? All your demo use kits are power switch. So a large part of the hardware vendors we use, um, they all integrate OpenVSwitch for control plane. So um, most of the switches run OpenVSwitch on there. They provide a configuration language for modifying it. And they like it because it does all the open flow message parsing for them, creates all the flows for them, and all they do is write a driver on the bottom that knows how to talk back to their ASIC. So they really like the, the workflow of working with um, OpenVSwitch. So it's, it's kind of gone full circle, right? You, you guys wrote a software switch, and now all the hardware switches use you because it makes their lives easier. But I guess that's the beauty of open source. Not all, some. Not all, no. The ones we work with, though? Um, I think only one of them doesn't, but I think if you look deep enough, it might, actually. I'm not sure. You can kind of tell because um, when you run some of the debug commands, you get open vSwitch output. <laughs> for this test bed, for this uh, test bed, does anyone run like, application there, or do you run any application in this scale? Um, you mean like, like network application type yeah. stuff? Um, so we were just doing forwarding and routing because... Um, yeah, I don't know. At 100 gig, things get a bit hard to... If you want to apply something to every packet, there's a few of them. <laughs> um, so we're doing, yeah, ingress filtering, I guess, on the network, and BCP38 filtering, that kind of thing, but um, not much more than that. But So what's missing? What's next? What's next? Yeah, good, good question, good question. So we kind of did this as a... Um, you know, we wanted to show that Fawcett couldn't be more than just a campus switch. It could, you know, open flow, if you buy a bigger box, it goes faster, right? Everything's line rate, everything's on the hardware. So, you know, our day-to-day -day isn't doing stuff like this. Our day-to-day -day is building um, 
enterprise campus networks for people. Um, and what we're focusing on a lot now is um, 802.1x and doing heavy integration of auth and the network because we're finding a lot of people um, you know, are starting to realize that the network is quite a pain point in terms of security, um, especially if you just implicitly trust the network. You know, what's to stop someone coming and plugging in and pretending to be another host on the network? So we're doing a lot of work with our users to sort of improve the situation. Um, so one particular use case we're working with at the moment is doing TPM-based 802.1x source. So you have, you know, most computers have a TPM in them. You mint some certs, use those for EAP um, TLS to talk to a radio server. Fawcett has a little um, module in between the two for joining them up. And you can kind of um, get this full end-to-end trust model where you know exactly where every device is on your network, what every device is, and this kind of thing. So that's, that's one extreme. But I also work with users on the other end of this extreme where they don't trust anything. Everything's just an internet connection. And um, you add um, kind of like single sign-on portals and that's what does all your auth. And so this is kind of going to a world where um, you, know, you don't VPN back to a central office. You can kind of use any internet connection and you have this application layer where you like log in and it checks who you are and that kind of thing. So we're kind of building trustful and trustless networks. Um, but the nice thing about OpenFlow is we, we can re-implement things. We can change how forwarding works. So I've got networks um, that I work on where we actually disable broadcast. So um, that's kind of an annoying thing from a security point of view that there's an address that you can send on every network that goes to everyone. So a lot of people I work with are a bit paranoid of this. Um, so Forza has a bunch of different flooding modes. So you can like disable flooding if you want, if it's an unknown Mac. Um, and yeah, you can also, like because we control all the code and the data path now, you can r- sort of re-implement some of these protocols to be a bit more secure. You know, it's almost 2020. We should start to think a little bit more about, you know, how dangerous L2 networks are, I guess. So that's kind of where our headspace is at the moment. And then we're constantly looking forward to the future of, um, you know, what could we do with P4? Does this open more programmable hardware to us? And that kind of thing. Because at the same time, mapping the capabilities of P4 back to um, low-cost hardware, um, that's, I think, a good question that I haven't seen anyone really solve yet. Um, Because P4 lets you do a lot of things. (laughs) And the devices I work with and hardware... They don't do a lot of things, so that's always a fun trade-off. So I have a question yes. about your architecture. Uh, so basically, you have this people switch, and it's really uh, just a control network switch, right? Because you have an out-of-band control network, mm-hmm. and you're connecting uh, uh, the people switch to all of your um, other uh, routers and switches, and obviously the data plane is so uh, I want to know why why did you use uh, a P4 switch? You could have used a Cisco or a Juniper switch, and you could have configured it. Yeah, I think. Um, oh, oh um, so yeah, so we wanted the whole network to be OpenFlow. So that's the first part of your question. And then why do we use a P4 thing rather than something else? Um, <laughs> we thought it would be fun. <laughs> we wanted to have a play. Um, yeah. Um, it was available to us, and we hadn't used a Tofino before. And um, our vendor said, 
we can write an OpenFlow integration for you. And you know, it sounded really interesting to us because we're experimenters ourselves. So we thought we'd, we'd do a bit of a challenge. And hey, it paid off. But it's basically working as a regular switch, right? It's, no, it's not a switch. It's, um, it was a router. Um, yeah. But um, what was it doing that wasn't traditional routing? Um, so, so yeah, everything in this network, I guess, could have been done with traditional hardware, but you would have had to speak three different config languages. So I would have had to produce the same config three amount of times, whereas Fawcett is a single um, configuration point to the whole network. So I just had to write Fawcett config once. That let me program three different vendors. And if you count Noviflow as, as a barefoot vendor and MPU vendor, that was four different kinds of devices. I was all programming with the exact same language. So, yeah, I don't know if you've written a, a system before for outputting like vendor configuration languages for switches, but it can be a bit of a pain to, to implement routing exactly the same on everything because everyone's got their own implementation. Whereas, um, so we wrote, we wrote a LACP, LACP implementation for this network, and because it's all implemented in OpenFlow and inside Fawcett itself, it's the exact same implementation on all the vendors at the same time. So you get rid of this interrupt problem because you know, everything's programmed by the same piece of software now, and um, it kind of simplifies things. But was that enabled by the switch? Yeah, kind of. So we send LACP messages up to Packetins, up to the controller. We parse them out. We reply to them. I see. And all of them have different kind of LACP messages. Is that what you see? So, yeah. Well, in the traditional like vendor view of the world, so there's the RFC. Everyone kind of grabs it, tries to implement it as best they can. They go to their interop events to plug into other vendors and make sure it kind of works. But they're not the same implementation. Like everyone's got their own code base. There's all going to be different quirks in the implementation, different ways they interpreted the standard. But this way, there is one implementation running on multiple vendors, which is kind of the, the key thing Fawcett brings. I see. And, and the V4 program or the V4 program V4 switch basically says that the, for this one, going to do X, Y, Z when you get this LACP message. Uh, no, um, so LACP is just using packet ins and packet outs in OpenFlow. So again, I'm still trying to figure out how you achieved the drop using the before switch. Um. You want to say that? Oh, I was going to say, so Fawcett was still programming um, the P4 switch using OpenFlow, and NovaFlow had written a shim layer between oh, OpenFlow no. input and... Um, the P4. Yeah, so, so the P4 program didn't change the entire time we worked on this project. The P4 program is like an open flow interpreter. Right. What about the, so, so, so what does it mean when you say that you don't have to write different configurations for the different switches different. because of the P4? Because it's Yeah, because it's Fawcett, not P4. Yeah. Oh, Sorry, yeah, I might have been a little bit confusing in my description there. Yeah, so the traditional view of the world is you'd go buy a Cisco or a Juniper or something, and you CLI it, or things are a bit newer now, maybe use NetConf to program it, but NetConf isn't vendor agnostic. Um, so I need to write you know, my NetConf different to a Juniper than I do to a Cisco, different to a whatever. And when that gets the new config applied to it, 
it's running in their code, not my code. So depending on how they've written their little module that does whatever protocol, I am now beholden to their implementation. So if it's spanning tree, if it's all these different things, you know, we've always had this interrupt problem. Um, and that's why when you see like a campus network, people just go to one vendor and buy one thing and write one check. And I mean, that can be nice for some things, but some of the people we work with like to spread their risk between multiple companies. So this lets you do it all completely vendor agnostic, um, which is, yeah, I guess the interesting thing. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons Attribution Unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org. Or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.